Welcome to the Melbourne Business School podcast channel. I'm Jan Marshall from Melbourne Business School. With me today is my colleague, Jen Overbeck, Associate Professor of Management at Melbourne Business School. And we're talking about power and influence, an area of expertise for Jen, who teaches and publishes in these topics. Today, we're focusing on power and influence across career stages. And to start us off, Jen, I'm thinking that power and influence are essential sources of currency in society, yet it seems we're not usually comfortable discussing these topics. That's something that I run into over and over when I talk to students or industry groups, leaders. Power is something that we feel sort of vaguely distasteful about. It seems not quite polite to want it, not quite desirable to, um, to seek it. And I think it stems from some of the ways that our, that Western society in particular thinks about power. And in general, uh, we can think about power in two different ways. One is that power is about dominating people, trying to get what we want, trying to serve ourselves. And that, of course, doesn't seem very desirable. But power is also, if you think about it, it's the absolutely necessary ingredient to get anything done in any kind of group context or any organization. And that kind of functional view of power essentially says, hey, it, you know, if you don't have some power, full stop. We're not going to be able to accomplish anything. And therefore, I want to accomplish things. I want to do great things for my organization, for other people, as well as for myself. I'm going to need to understand power. I'm going to need to have it. And I'm going to need to use it. And I think if we think about it that way, it becomes a lot more something that we can feel comfortable thinking about, claiming, and pursuing. Great, and I guess then that at different stages of our career, we can think that power and influence might change. What can you tell us about power and influence at the start of our career? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are huge differences in um, not only the skills that people have at different phases, but also what's optimal for them at different phases of their careers. So one of the key ways that people advance in their careers is that early on, they are discovered by somebody or they find somebody that they approach as a mentor. And then that person can recognize their talent, can introduce them to other key stakeholders, can give them opportunities, can coach them through difficult times and really celebrate their successes. One of my um, favorite stories about this that I use a lot in teaching an MBA classes, it's an old, old story but it's in Ford Motor Company in the 1950s in the United States where uh, there was a group of young people, called, young men called the Whiz Kids uh, informally, who had all come out of the US Army and, and top universities and were brought together by this guy, Tex Thornton, who was really the mentor of this group, um, started, uh, started them working together, uh, cultivated their talent. The entire group was acquired by Ford Motor Company, and they ended up essentially um, gaining enormous power within Ford and engineered the finance revolution. So taking Ford from primarily a manufacturing company to primarily well, a manufacturing company that had a, a huge power base in finance, and it was all around the whiz kids. And what would happen, the dynamic was that Tex Thornton and then later Ed Lundy, who, who succeeded him as sort of the leader of the whiz kids, would find promising young men, teach them how to dress, tell them what to say, take them to meetings, coach them on how to speak to people. And when there were promotions, he would make sure that his guys were in line for those promotions. 
that did a couple things. It helped to advance the careers of these young men. Many of whom went on to great things. R.J. Miller was one of the whiz kids. He ended up being dean of Stanford Business School. Um, Robert McNamara was one of the whiz kids. He ended up being president of uh, a Ford Motor Company and then the U.S. Secretary of Defense for a long period of time. Um, so glorious careers that resulted from this initial mentorship relationship. Plus, it served Thornton and then it served Lundy by giving them a power structure throughout the organization because they now had key allies all over anywhere they needed to, to be able to be influential. They were able to find somebody who was a receptive voice. So it's, it's a very win-win situation and many people earlier in their career can find that mentor and capitalize on that relationship as a way to, to get started. Do you think that case with Ford, was that a deliberate idea around power and influence or did the power and influence come through naturally? Yeah, I haven't seen any, uh, any good information about sort of what was going on in their heads about it other than absolute arrogance and belief in their own you know, superiority and, and that drove a lot of it. Um, my sense is that much of the time when people are really amassing power, when they're really becoming influential, they're not necessarily thinking about it. it over and over and over, particularly among junior people. I think people um, back into uh, positions of power and influence. They sort of accidentally stumble upon opportunities. I think what's probably uppermost in one's mind at that stage is much more um, career trajectory. Am I going to get ahead? Am I going to make it in this career? Am I going to get myself a viable path forward? And it turns out that, that your ability to do that coincides with your ability to develop power and influence. But again, early on, that's just not the way we're thinking. And for a lot of people, they'll avoid thinking about that for as long as possible. Um, but at some point, you start to realize, oh, this, this career progression that I'm pursuing, that has to do with power. And maybe I need to start thinking about power. And the ones who are going to succeed over the long term are the ones who realize that and start to think consciously about it. So we've got this early career stage where people have perhaps inadvertently or luck or by chance are creating a pathway for themselves. They've perhaps got a promotion and starting to think about um, where they are in the organization and perhaps their next step in a career. So as they're moving up through the organization, how might their uh, work with power and influence change or what might they need to think about? There's a big transition point that starts to happen around mid-career where you have people um, who have been the protege in a mentor-protege kind of relationship or they have been sponsored by somebody or they've just managed to excel through dint of their exceptional talent and people have noticed that talent and so they've gotten opportunities. But now they start to get to a stage where um, it's not just about your individual performance. If you want to advance in mid-career, you have to start being able to work with other people laterally in, in a much more meaningful sense than you may have had to before. And you start to have to supervise people, which means you have to start to exercise uh, influence downward in a way that maybe you haven't had to. If you've had a mentor or sponsor, you need to start distinguishing yourself from that mentor or sponsor. So I have certainly seen uh, in my own career, colleagues who shall remain nameless, who had a mentor that really carried them along but never managed to separate from that mentor. And in fact, as an academic, uh, one of the things we do is conduct research. We publish papers and early in our careers, we'll publish papers with 
our graduate supervisor. That's the person who has been training us. But there's a stage as you become a more independent, more mid-level scholar where it's really expected that you need to stop publishing with that person or we're going to think that person's responsible for your success. You need to be standing on your own two feet. And the same thing happens in business environments. The same thing happens with mentor-protege relationships. The protege needs to start to be able to be independent and to have their own voice. So I'll use the example of a law firm. If you have been an associate in a law firm and you've been sponsored by somebody who is at a partnership level and now you're promoted to partner. Now you need to go to partnership meetings and the expectation is not that you sit around the table and then look at your mentor every time they say something to see what the right thing is to do. The expectation is you have a voice, you have contributions, and you're now going to speak as one of the partners. And so you need to navigate that transition. You need to start to learn to be an equal and to be a peer. And it's a very delicate transition because you're used to being the subordinate and your mentor is used to having respect uh, from you, a certain amount of deference. And so the, the key challenges at this stage are to be able to express that deference while also finding those opportunities to stand on your own feet, express your own voice even when it differs from what your mentor has to say. And a key to doing that successfully is developing lateral relationships. So at mid-career, you really need to stop thinking so much about upward and start thinking outward. Who are my peers? Who are the other stakeholders in the organization? What relationships do I need to develop? And how do I exert influence? That's not just about power or, or um, being taken care of, but rather how do I exert influence by making trades, making deals, uh, doing favors, um, developing friendships, and, and generally showing my value laterally in the organization. And what are the risks of people are, let's say, unable to see that they should be working laterally now? They, they just haven't managed to understand that that's what they need to do. What's, we can hear about what they should do. What do you often see they do, say, wrong or incorrectly, perhaps, around that point in their careers? I'm actually working on a, a research project on this right now with a colleague, and we each had our own motivation, but his motivation was that he worked in advertising agencies. And he had several experiences where uh, somebody who had been maybe a really brilliant account executive going out and dealing with clients is now in a position where they need to be in a more uh, leadership managerial role in the, inside the agency. And he saw a couple of instances where somebody wasn't able to navigate that transition successfully. And the, the key issue was that they were used to operating along the, the strength of their own expertise. So they were an ace account manager and that, that was where their success lay. Now suddenly they had to work with and through other people. The people who did that successfully generally understood, okay, now I have to deal with other people, and so they would, they would start to develop those relationships. If they needed to make a decision about how accounts would be run, they would go have conversations with other people in the agency and find out how did they feel about that situation, what did they think the right thing to do was, and then they would you know, think about that input and come up with a potential solution, and then they would try to get support for that solution. It's a slower process, but generally when they would roll that out, it would be supported and it would be a really effective change. The ones who weren't as successful typically tried to persevere in that belief that they could just do it all themselves. So they had what we're calling an illusion of autonomy in their power that, you know what, it, the whole point of getting more power is I can do exactly what I want, I'm free, nobody can tell me what to do, and I can just get this done. 
And the people who persist in that illusion, what we've observed and what we're trying to research to, to uh, confirm, what they seem to do is just exercise power more. So they try to become more dominant. They try to order people. They try to shut down dissent. They try not to have to listen to other voices. And that ends up making them so much less effective because other people, of course, resent having to work in that environment. And while they may comply as long as they absolutely have to, if you're turning the screws, as soon as you're not there and as soon as you're not applying, applying pressure, they're going to do what they want to do, which means that your power is not nearly as sustainable, it's not nearly as effective, and people are eager to see you go so that if there's an opportunity to try to push you out, uh, much more likely for that to happen. So I think the, the big risks are um, you can end up trying to use power in a way that's counterproductive for the organization and potentially very, very harmful to your own career uh, because, because you're resisting the social dynamics. Thanks, Jen, and we'll pause now for a short break. We'll be back in a few seconds. To those chosen to come here and to the organisations they represent, congratulations and welcome. You're making a clear announcement that you want to do more, achieve more and be more. While you're with us, you'll be among the best, learning from the best. You'll leave changed and then be called upon to lead change. So to you we say, welcome to Melbourne Business School. Welcome to the world class. Welcome back and today we're talking with Jen Overbeck, Associate Professor of Management at Melbourne Business School about power and influence. So our person has navigated this space and they're uh, performing successfully at mid-career level. They get promoted to a more senior role, let's say a senior executive role, they're reporting into a CEO. Is there something else to know about that level that's different about power and influence again? So I think what we see is that at each level that you go up, the um, breadth of relationships that you have to be concerned with expands. We do often, when we're very early in our careers, think um, about people who are more senior in this kind of idealized way. They don't have bosses anymore. People aren't telling them what to do. They get to decide. And you know, often, I think, when you're a very, very junior person, you look at the senior people and think, they're just sitting back with their feet up on the desk, reading a book all day, or going to play golf. They're not working very hard. As you advance in your career, you realize the number of demands that just keep getting piled on top of what you've already been doing, and those multiply as you go along in your career. So somebody at very senior levels is dealing with an enormous information load, an enormous number of relationships that have to be managed. The stakeholders, the, the, the sources of stakeholder concerns have multiplied. So instead of just a boss or a superior to deal with, they've got subordinates in multiple departments. They've got peers in other departments. At very senior levels, they've got outside stakeholders. They may have shareholders, they may have regulators, they may have uh, members in the media who are interested in what they're doing. And all of those different parties have to be managed and have to be um, influenced in a way that continues to serve the interests of the organization or continues to accomplish the goals of the power holder. So you have to have even better social skills as you go along. You have to have enormous bandwidth and attention and energy. One of my favorite findings about power is by Jeff Pfeffer, who's a professor at Stanford Business School, has written a couple of really terrific books on this topic. And one of his early books pointed out that a chief predictor of who's going to end up in very high positions of power is flat out just physical energy. 
the people who have the stamina, who have the um, ability to go without sleep, who have the physical fortitude to deal with the demands of being in power. And those of us who need nine, 10 hours of sleep a night are gonna have a little more trouble going into those kinds of positions just because they're so demanding. That's fascinating, and I'm, I'm thinking now, you know, at CEO level, uh, I imagine all of that applies, and, and maybe something else for CEOs uh, around parent influence because they've hit the top of the trees. One of the things we hear about CEOs and other positions like that is this phrase, it's lonely at the top. And I do think that we hear, we hear over and over when CEOs get together and have an opportunity to talk to other CEOs, they express this uh, subjective sense of uh, almost isolation at times. And it's fascinating because if you look objectively at the social relationships and the professional relationships of CEOs versus people low in the company, CEOs are far more embedded in relationships. They have many, many more ties to other people when they're at the top of the company. It's what I mentioned earlier about the number of stakeholders proliferates and you get to know lots of people, you're very visible. But at the same time, that visibility often puts you in a position of being the representative of the organization. It's, you are the embodiment of that organization. It's the organization reduced to one person. And that's a position of enormous pressure because people are going to come and ask you, you know, what does this organization think or what are the intentions of the organization or how do you account for a failure or a problem that was encountered by the organization. And that CEO is the focal person who has to stand there and represent the organization. For CEOs being at the top of the organization and being in this isolated and very focal position can be a real opportunity because it does confer a certain freedom and it gives you a centralized authority and voice with which to speak, which means that you can, on the spur of the moment, say something and that's gonna have effects in a way that if you said something on the spur of the moment as a junior member of the organization, that would, that would have no influence at all. So there's something very satisfying and very uh, effective about the power that you can wield in that focal position. I'm thinking about CEOs and uh, we often hear about their success and failure when they move organisations. So someone's been enormously successful in one place and they move to another and they fail within months. I'm wondering how much correlation there is or, or, or relationship there is to power and influence in that scenario. Oh, that's absolutely related to power and influence. Um, and it's very importantly related to that key dynamic of power and influence being socially embedded. So as I've been saying, as you advance in your career, you find that your power is much less about you. It's much less about a particular characteristic that you have or a resource that you have or a skill that you have. And it's much more about the way that you can leverage all of the people around you. Everything is about social relationships and, and using the group. And so if you're in one organization and you're able to really figure out what makes that organization tick and be effective in that organization, I think it can be very tempting to confuse that with it being something about you. And so now you move to another organization and you think it was all me, so I'm gonna go and do exactly the same thing in a new organization. But now you're surrounded by entirely different people who have different norms. There's a different culture in that organization. There might be different resources or different constraints that you face. And what, what would be a really good idea would be to arrive in that new organization, stop, take stock, figure out what's the landscape here. How does this work? How do people interact? What makes people tick? 
what are the strategies and styles that I can carry over from my previous context that would enable, to me, enable me to be successful here? And what things might I need to calibrate differently because of the different dynamics in this organization? And I, I believe that many times when these CEO transitions and other transitions fail, it's because of an insufficient recognition that it's not just you who's pulling the levers of power, but it's everybody else who is constraining how those levers move. And you really want to understand that before uh, and while you're trying to make changes or it's going to be very difficult to succeed. So it sounds like there's a bit of work someone would or could do before they entertain taking up a role uh, in a certain organisation, start thinking about how they might be able to take up that role successfully and if indeed they could sense that there would be success for them or that there may be some aspect of that organisation, perhaps the norms that uh, they're not simply going to fit with and therefore they may fail at the first hurdle. And I think there are two particular strategies that people could use to do that well. Um, one is to find people in the organisation who can be informants. So again, if we think about power and influence as getting increasingly social and increasingly socially embedded as you advance, you want to think about what are the social resources that are available to you. So you want to be talking to people and you specifically want to talk to people not just who are going to tell you what you want to hear and not just who are trying to advance through you, but people who are good social observers who have their finger on the pulse of that organization and who can read the relationships well. So you want to try to find who are those people and then have them tell you as much as possible. So having an informant is a really good strategy for that. And then the second thing is um, both before you get to the organization, perhaps more crucially once you arrive at that organization, to identify a really good lieutenant or two. Um, somebody who might not be in that focal power position, but who can do a couple of things. Can, again, gather intelligence and let you know what's happening out there and what are the things that you need to be aware of. What What's landing well with the company when you arrive and what do you need to tweak? What do you need to potentially change? The other thing that person can do is help to model to the company what it looks like to follow you. Uh, it gives you legitimacy that there's somebody who's going to show deference and respect to you and treat you as a leader. Um, it also just lets them know what that interaction looks like. So when they watch you interact with that person, they can see what that power relationship is, how that's going to play out with you, how you conduct yourself. Um, it's a nice little window that gives people a chance to observe and learn and then, and then practice. And when I say this, uh, I don't mean that you just are going to happen upon somebody who will be a lieutenant. I mean, when you're in higher levels of power, it behooves you to think really strategically and consciously about what do I want my power to look like in this organization? How do I want to use it? How do I want people to be approaching me and thinking about it? And then you set up that lieutenant relationship, sometimes very, very deliberately, uh, talking to that person, letting them know that you want them to be in that role, defining the boundaries of that role, and even you know, at, at risk of seeming very cynical, which I am I'm not, potentially staging some of those interactions so that people really have the opportunity to see this is how I interact with somebody. And so not cynically and not, um, not in a false way, but simply trying to, trying to be very explicit about here are my behaviors, here's an opportunity to observe 
uh, let's set the stage to move forward. Would there be anything to add to that if you're actually changing careers? So you're presumably changing organisations. I imagine you take all of that idea and knowledge that you've just explained so well with you, but now we're actually also changing careers. Does that have another dimension to what you need to do or think about? Oh, I think so. Hopefully it could be a real advantage to you if you've progressed some way and so you've developed these social skills and these uh, you know, group navigation skills that'll make some of that influence piece easier for you. When you change careers, one of the big challenges that you face is you're also kind of moving yourself back to the starting block with regard to your skill sets. And it is always true in any career that one of the first things that people are going to evaluate about you is your competence. And we're not going to generally let you get beyond an initial stage unless you can satisfy us about your competence. Now, that said, of course, we all know people who are not particularly competent who manage to become extremely powerful and they're playing the game a different way. But for, for the vast majority of us, the first hurdle to pass is that hurdle of competence, showing that we have the expertise, showing that we can do the job, we have the talent. And once we show that, that establishes our worth to go forward, advance in the career and become more influential. So if you're switching careers, you're kind of having to navigate two things at once. You want to maintain all of those influence skills, build relationships, try not to let yourself fall backward at all on that dimension. But you then have a very steep curve for trying to bring your skill set up to people's expectations so that that's not a disadvantage to you. So I think, again, it's a bit of cognitive load. It's a, it's a challenge in terms of what you have to juggle, but it's something where I think career switchers um, should give themselves credit for the skills that they are bringing in interpersonal relations and, and working with other people because that'll help them a lot. Thank you, Jen, for sharing your insights today. It's been a really interesting tour of power and influence through the career stages. For more on management and leadership, visit our website at mbs.edu.